Hi, my name is Susan Gubar, and I've been teaching at IU since 1973 until a cancer diagnosis ended my professional career. I keep on writing. I started writing about women's literature, and now I've been writing about cancer. I'm Doug Storm. This is Interchange on WFHB. Susan Gubar is our guest today to discuss her newest book, out in May this year from W.W. Norton, Reading and Writing Cancer, How Words Heal. She joined me in the studio at WFHB for this pre-recorded conversation. In 2008, Susan Gubar was diagnosed with stage 3 ovarian cancer, which means that the cancer had metastasized beyond the ovaries into the abdomen or nearby lymph nodes. The statistical prognosis for life expectancy when ovarian cancer is diagnosed in this stage is three to five years. In 2012, Gubar became a participant in a phase one drug trial that she describes as a miracle. She is now in what evolutionary biologist Stephen Jay Gould termed in his essay, The Median Isn't the Message, the right skewed small tail of those living with cancer beyond the median of prognosis. Susan Gubar is Distinguished Emerita Professor of English at Indiana University. She's the author of Memoir of a Debulked Woman, Enduring Ovarian Cancer. And for the online New York Times Well blog, she writes the column Living with Cancer. She's also, as she alluded to in her self-introduction at the top of the show, a literary scholar and one of great influence, co-authoring with Sandra Gilbert, The Mad Woman in the Attic the woman writer in the 19th century literary imagination published in 1979. This has been called a foundational work in the field of feminist literary criticism. Gubar has also recently published Judas, a biography, and True Confessions, Feminist Professors Tell Stories Out of School. Our music for this show, all songs by Jelly Roll Morton, was chosen by Susan Gubar's husband, Don Gray, a professor emeritus of English at Indiana University. Our opening song is Dr. Jazz. Our first segment offers a brief summary of the path from diagnosis through the memoir and blog to this most recent book, which Gubar describes as an attempt to make a start in surveying the lay of the land in the literary canon of cancer writing. We discuss the tyranny of cheerfulness and the way the language used to discuss cancer seems to blame the victim as if one should be held personally responsible for the disease. How we talk about our dying with Susan Gubar on Interchange. Well, thanks for joining me today on Interchange. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, on page 48, excuse me, page 148 of your new book, you write, It seems unlikely that I will remain in a chemically induced remission for the year of production it will take for you to be holding this book in your hands. Here you are in front of us right now in a studio talking about this new book, Reading and Writing Cancer, How Words Heal, which was published in May. Surprising or... Very surprising. The whole narrative is a narrative. I hate to say this, but it's a narrative of a miracle. Um, I was supposed to die in uh, 2013, according to the prognosis of my oncologist. And in August uh, 2012, she found a trial with a drug, a targeted drug, after various chemotherapies had failed to keep ovarian cancer at bay. And since August 2012, this drug has kept me alive mm. because it's not 
chemotherapy, but a targeted drug, it has some side effects, um, but nothing like the miserable side effects of chemotherapy, radiation, and surgery. Can you uh, back us up a little bit, and, and if you don't mind giving us a, a brief summary of your memoir, perhaps, or telling us where you've, where you've come from in terms of your, your situation with cancer? Memoir of a Debulked Woman um, is a book that came out of the experience I had, which was very shocking, as it is for many cancer patients, of getting a late-stage diagnosis. In my case, stage 3 uh, ovarian cancer comes with a prognosis of 3 to 5 years. That was in 2008. So um, I, I really felt the need to understand what was happening to me, and I only know how to do that through writing. That's how I've understood the world since I was a very young person. And I began writing the memoir in order to understand first this very radical debulking operation, which removes all of the organs that have been contaminated by cancer in the abdomen, the uterus, the fallopian tubes, um, the spleen, various other organs, parts of the bowel. And then after that, many, many different kinds of chemotherapies that were tried on my cancer, uh, which kept on recurring. So over the, the memoir is an effort to recount that story, in part to protest the state of the art right now for patients with ovarian cancer. Hmm. Now, you, you address a lot of this in this new book in terms of memoirs being a, a particular genre and then cancer memoirs being, uh, I guess, a subset of the, the memoir genre and how those are... Um, positioned in some sense or take a particular angle. You talk a little bit about the tyranny of happiness or something like that where you're going to conquer this and like there, there's a raw, raw cancer memoir and then there's, there are other forms as well and, and yours took on a, a different form. Well, the issue of the tyranny of cheerfulness um, has to do with uh, the popular culture. Um, cancer survivors are constantly told to bravely fight and beat the cancer. Uh, unfortunately, many people cannot do that, and I think the survivor rhetoric very often makes those people feel as if somehow they failed in the fight, uh, which is really something we don't want to do. It's like blaming the victim. Uh, the great memoirs that I read and discuss in reading and writing cancer are, are memoirs that really grapple with the issue of the difficulty of maintaining a life after the trauma of diagnosis and treatment. So I think memoirs are particularly useful for people because a person suffering from prostate cancer can read a prostate cancer memoir and find out what another person, another human being went through grappling with, let's say, incontinence or impotence. They can read a breast cancer uh, memoir if they have breast cancer and see an, a range of responses that are very serious uh, about dealing with this disease rather than fighting it. Hmm. I, I can come from this from a, a personal perspective myself. My wife died of metastatic melanoma in 2005 and a big part of your book is uh, uh, about caregiving as well and when when faced with these for lack of a better term, you know, terror situations where you can't think of anything else but the end of everything. Um, and to not be able to think in the place of a cancer 
patient or someone with cancer. I, you know, I was not able to think in that, in that place, looking to books, you know, to try to understand what was happening from inside of it as much as possible. It's very, very difficult to do. And at the same time, constantly being sort of destroyed over and over again by reading all those books also. You know. <laughs> well, first, let me say how sorry I am well, you. for your thank loss. You. Um, I talk in the book about a number of memoirs by caregivers. Uh, I think that the caregiver doesn't, as you point out, have the perspective of the person who's the patient, but he or she nevertheless has real insight into the sort of the suffering and uh, the and the difficulty, uh, the confusion. Um, there are a number of caregiver memoirs. Gerda Lerner wrote one about the, the dying of her husband from a brain tumor. Um, Leanne Schreiber wrote one about her mother. And she said that she wrote her memoir as a caregiver in part to remind herself that she was not the patient and that she was acknowledging her mother's suffering, but she was also acknowledging her own survival. I uh, dedicated this book, Reading and Writing Cancer, to those who survive and those who do not, because I think that it's more important to think in terms of patients coping than survivors beating cancer. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. You're listening to my pre-recorded conversation with feminist literary scholar and living with cancer blogger Susan Gubar about her most recent book, Reading and Writing Cancer, How Words Heal. As I was reading your book, I was thinking about the books I had been reading, you know, to, to try to understand, you know, how, how um, some of the books you describe in this book would perhaps have been useful you know, to me at the time. And you're know, trying to understand anger at cancer itself, anger at the situation, anger at the loss of a particular future, um, anger at medicine, anger at everything, right? It's a very difficult thing to move beyond that. And you're seeking constantly for that little bit of something, you know, uh, calling it hope is, is to me calling it an, like having an active sense of what can, what you can fix on, you know, what you can, and I use the word fix, I suppose, uh, um, to try to fix something, right? <laughs> That's part of the issue, I guess, uh, how to fix something. You know, the books that I read were not, were just primarily, they seemed like the same things the doctors were saying, right? So they tell you, and I, and I guess you don't, you don't balk at prognosis, right? You have to accept, there's a big part of your book too, I think, is, is saying, you know, you have to bring the, the dying and the death into the center of this, because that's what you're confronting. And if you're not confronting it, then there's something that's not quite getting accomplished, I suppose. You know, how did you move into those spaces, you know, moving from that initial uh, diagnosis that had to have been a shock uh, into a place where you became active in in dealing with it, not beating it, but uh, dealing with it? Well, I think there are so many different questions involved in that question. The first thing I want to say about anger is that I talk about the anger of the memoirists. Um, I think that you can trace, or at least I try to trace here, anger at physicians by memoirists who are themselves physicians uh, because of the kind of impersonality 
of oncologists or the incomparability, incomparability, the word I'm looking for, incomprehension of the of the oncologist, their inability to use language that patients understand the jargon of cancer and of, of verbal uh, sort of pyrotechnics around science and biomedicine. Uh, the technologies of cancer can make people very angry and very alienated and upset, not to mention the by the symptoms and the side effects created by the procedures, which are called usually mild side effects or, you know, minimal side effects, but which are really grotesque side effects where you lose all your hair, you lose your appetite, you lose your libido. So there is a lot of anger in some of the memoirs. Uh, I think that anger is very often a reflex, a reflex of fear, a uh, fear of the cancer, fear of not knowing how long you have left to live. Uh, fear that people who are dependent upon you are going to be hurt and vulnerable. There are so many fears, not to mention fear of cancer itself. The idea of medicine and distance is one that comes through most of the time. The idea that there's a there's sort of a double thing at play here in the book too, the, the attempt to get your own distance from the disease and how medicine is a distance also, a distancing function. We talk about not being able to talk to our doctors or our doctors not understanding what we're going through, but at the same time imagining doctors seeing a lot of patients and, and dealing with a lot of these situations and maybe needing to survive in some way be behind jargon, behind techniques. I think technology and oncology, radiation, chemotherapy, surgery, they can all alienate us from ourselves, distance ourselves from ourselves. Uh, there's a way in which when you see part of your body on a screen, uh, you can't believe that at what's out there is something that's in here. And that loss of agency that patients feel because they can't speak the scientific language of their doctors, because they can't comprehend the biomedical or technological procedures that are being done to them. That lack of agency is something I think writing can heal. It seems to me writing gives us a different kind of distance, a very healing distance. It gives us a sense that we are not having cancer we're conceptualizing what it means to have cancer, or we're writing through our responses to various treatments and procedures. And through that distancing, it seems to me writing gives us a sense of agency. Well, it's a good, uh, good sort of contrast to a technological ability to write. You know, your, your pen or your pencil is technology as well, but it's one that puts you in touch with the self, perhaps. And, and being a blogger as well that you are with your Living with Cancer blog, um, we understand that we can make use of this technology also to, to write ourselves in a sense, you know, to write another self, to write other kinds of selves. Um, so it's an interesting difference between the technology that we make use of in, in our medicines uh, and the technologies that we can simplify with and in some sense. As you say, with a paper and pencil are, are cheap, readily available, and portable. Right, and laptops are wonderful things, also portable. The technology of the computer makes possible all kinds of writing, and there are all kinds of writing for people. Uh, those people who want to be private about their experiences can keep a journal that they never show anyone, and um, they can express themselves. They can vent. They can talk back. 
to their doctors or to their caregivers if they need to without hurting anybody's feelings and maybe just have a kind of cathartic experience of just venting emotions. But they can also write for audiences. They can write blogs. And I, in the book, I try to give some pointers on how to generate blogs. They can write blogs for just their family and their relatives, or they can write public blogs on the internet. Uh, they can write memoirs. They can write some of the wonderful short stories and novels and uh, graphic um, productions that I discuss in the book. Yeah, there's a, a wide range of things in here, and it's one of the things that made it uh, uh, a very useful uh, resource in a sense, right? So uh, I, I found it, you know, I, I circled the things I wanted to chase down, you know, immediately after we have this conversation. I, I wish I had some time to do it before the conversation as well, but there are ways you can do some of those things online as well uh, in terms of the uh, the artists that you talk about. You can go online and see some of their work also. Um, but that was one of the things I thought, was really interesting about the book was how you engage with some of those uh, those particular uh, other works from literature to movies to uh, to graphic arts uh, and painting and photography as well. So there's, the, I think you're sort of charting an initial charting of the course in some sense, right? You say there's not a whole lot of like general field understanding at this point. Is that is that right? That, I think what I'm trying to do comes out of my history as a literary critic. I mean, I was a person who was very interested in mapping women's literary achievements for uh, throughout the 70s and 80s. That's what I primarily did. And so when I got cancer, I thought to myself, well, what, what would the cancer canon consist of? I mean, what? What are the photographs, the paintings? What are the poems? What are the stories? What are the novels? And I try to map the cancer canon in the book, um, if lightly, because it's not an academic book. It's a book for general readers. It's time for a break. This is Interchange on WFHB. Today we're joined by Susan Gubar, influential and well-known feminist literary scholar, who in 2008 was diagnosed with stage 3 ovarian cancer, a terminal diagnosis. We're talking about her latest book, Reading and Writing Cancer, How Words Heal. Our break music is Jelly Roll's Blues by Jelly Roll Morton. When we return, the metaphors of cancer will be our primary concern. Stay with us on Interchange on WFHB. Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. I'm Doug Storm. 
Our show is How We Talk About Our Dying with online New York Times Living With Cancer blogger Susan Gubar. For this segment, metaphor is our primary focus, and we learn about some of Gubar's favorite writing about cancer, such as Laurie Moore's People Like That Are The Only People Here, canonical babbling in Pied Onk, Tolstoy's The Death of Ivan Illich, and Tilly Olson's Tell Me a Riddle. We then turn to the way the literature of cancer often focuses on metaphors like invasion and colonization. Finally, Susan Gubar, in her most comfortable mode as teacher, suggests ways to compose those words that heal. Well, you do address a little bit the idea of illness, uh, and you start with Susan Sontag's uh, illness as metaphor, and you you challenge what she says a little bit there, that metaphor, of course, is necessary, um, and you know that she probably knew that as well, of course. She was not going to purge the world (laughs) of illness from metaphor. It's just not going to happen. Um, I take her point that the metaphor swirling around cancer very often, particularly in her historical moment, blamed the victim. They talked about repressed anger, and they said, well, people got cancer because they had repressed their anger. We still see a tiny bit of that when people will say to a cancer patient, well, do you exercise? Did you smoke? How How is your nutritional um, program? As if, you know, the person got the cancer because she smoked or she um, didn't exercise or somehow she was eating, she wasn't eating enough spinach. So there is still, and I think it's understandable because people don't want to get cancer themselves. So they want to say there must be some reason why you got this cancer. You must have done something wrong. Something I can avoid. Yes. And yeah. unfortunately, we all know that given genetics, this is something that just happens. The cell mutates. It dysfunctions, it multiplies, and very often these cancers cannot be detected early. One of my issues about ovarian cancer is that there is no early detection tool, and the symptoms are masked or muted so that you would think that they were just pertaining to some sort of midlife dysfunction, you know, indigestion or um, constipation or exhaustion or maybe a swelling stomach. Well, Everybody who's middle-aged experiences these things, and you chalk it up to something like irritable bowel syndrome, or you uh, think about drinking prune juice. So the issue of screening devices is a very important one Mm. for patients right now, especially blood marker Mm. uh, detection tools, which are cheap and easy, and it's very important that research progress along those lines. So the blood markers are ways in which you can ter- determine your, your genetic predisposition to it or that you might might already have the disease? What I think scientists are working on now is developing tests, blood tests, that would actually tell you by the marker whether or not you had early stages of a disease. And that is that would make all the difference because early stages of ovarian cancer, stage one ovarian cancer is curable. Mm. Stage three is not. Mm. It's incurable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you were in a book, something like 70% of uh, ovarian cancers are found at a late stage. Yes. There are cancers that are more easily mm-hmm. um, diagnosed at earlier stages and cancers that are less. Mm-hmm. But that's where we should be going. Mm-hmm. As I was reading through, there are some authors that you give a little more time to. Uh, were there? Uh, do you want to talk about any of those in particular? The thing that you thought, well, if, if I could recommend three 
particular books, I'd want those to be these. I think it's interesting in the cancer canon that the works I liked the best were quite short. Mm. I think it's hard to sustain a long novel about cancer. It can be very depressing <laughs> for one. Um, I think Laurie Moore's story about a mother and a father dealing with a child who has a cancer um, is a brilliant story. I'm trying to remember the name of it. Oh, we I can look it up real quick. I wrote, I, I wrote it down, too. Uh, that, that's it's, my favorite it, chapter, probably. It's, the, in, yeah. it's something about canonical babble and peed onk is, is, um, is the subtitle. And um, it, it's just a wonderful short story by Laurie Moore in which the parents are so baffled by the languages that surround them, the languages of the other parents who are looking for a miracle, the languages of the doctors and the nurses, which don't seem to pertain to their terror of what's happening to their child. Um, I would say that's a wonderful short story. That one is called People Like That Are the Only People Here, Canonical Babbling in Pedonk. Right. And pedonk, as you say, is short, shorthand for pediatric oncology and a, a, a jab at the fact that there are such things called pedonk, that we call that pedonk. Pedonk, yeah, yeah right. Yeah, that's unfortunate. I, I do think that the two greatest short stories um, about cancer and about dying uh, with cancer are by uh, Tolstoy and Tilly Olson, uh, The Death of Ivan Illich and um, Riddles by Tilly Olson are are wonderful short stories. And what they deal with, it seems to me, although they're quite different, um, he's dealing with uh, probably a pancreatic cancer and she's dealing with uh, some kind of gynecological cancer. But both of them are very interested in what cancer does to, to the sense of time. And that was something new for me to think about. Clearly a prognosis changes your sense of your future. Uh, but it also, it also, dealing with a foreshortened future can also send you time traveling back into the past, especially as these characters approach death. And I found those stories extremely moving. Even hmm. uh, Illich is um, like a mid-level bureaucrat, uh, and it deals with, it starts at the, at the end, I suppose, right, with uh, Illich's actual uh, death announcement in the newspaper and how people respond to that first, you know, what the world around him responds to. And notice its announcement in the newspaper, the Daily News, so it has to do with time right from the get-go. Right. It's, it's a, it comes out on a particular day and a particular mm-hmm. date. And so, and the rest of the story, which goes back and then tells his, you know, his original uh, realization of illness, his dealing with his doctors and his family, and then finally his death. But throughout the latter parts of the story, he's time-traveling back to his childhood, and he's remembering spots of time that give him great pleasure. And at the end, he has to go through this sort of bleak, black bag. And it's very mysterious how he does that. It's a very wonderful short story. Well, you have, uh, I think you make a little bit of a connection even just in dealing, like talking about these things in connection with that experience, which you know, it's like three days of screaming suffering for Illich, which, you know, has, as uh, I assume Tolstoy does all the time, has Christian uh, overtones to it and and birth as well, right? So through a dark canal in a sense or a dark bag. And, and a lot of this is connected to the 
uh, further in the book in terms of, you know, memoirs and discussions of giving birth to cancer itself or not being able to give birth to the cancer that won't, won't get out of you in a sense. With gynecologic, well, one of the things I'm interested in the book is, is metaphors of cancer. Um, and with gynecological, uh, cancers, very often the metaphor is if is of a growth in the uterus, it must be a kind of death fetus. There's a kind of uh, absorption with this anxiety about giving birth to death. Um, arrivals and departures haunt a lot of the writers that I deal with. For writers who are not dealing with gynecological cancer, the metaphors tend to be more like uh, of colonization, as if the body has been colonized, as if um, some invader has come inside and is staking out various claims inside the body. And very often that invader is imagined as a cannibal or eating up the body, the cancer eating up the body, or as an animal, a beast, um, an octopus with tentacles, um, um, uh, a crab, cancer itself being a crab. Um, sometimes the body is described as a house that's been invaded. Mm. There's a lot of that sense of the self, the integrity of the self, having been violated. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. You're listening to my pre-recorded conversation with feminist literary scholar and living with cancer blogger Susan Gubar about her most recent book, Reading and Writing Cancer, How Words Heal. You know, uh, one of the things about this, too, is the idea that words heal. It's part of the, the subtitle to the book, How Words Heal, um, and trying to understand how writing is a particular way certain people work. In, you know, and, and you mention privilege throughout the book, too, the idea that there are people who write for a living and so then can write narratives of their experience or who are performers or who are well-placed enough to have time to write about their illness as well. Uh, one of the things that, well, a couple of things popped into my head. One is that writing is not easy. You know, and so part of the, the book is a prompt, as you say. Here are some ideas to start you out. Um, uh, but there are so many ways in which we do uh, communicate via the the written word, I suppose. Now, that that sort of comes against this idea of reflection, though, also. So the Twitterverse is not a very reflective way to to conceive of confronting cancer, perhaps. But maybe there is something in, in that capacity that you can make use of. Um, but I guess let's let's start there, I guess. It seems to me that for a lot of people, and I, I would imagine many, many, many people, writing just generally is something they, they won't do, they can't do even, perhaps. Do you think that's, I mean, does it seem like that's the case? I I don't know. I I've been teaching writing from freshman composition through graduate writing seminars for 40 years or more. And I think even people who want to write are anxious about writing, but they really do want to write. Mm. And many people want to write. Mm. So because they're anxious about writing, what I do in reading and writing cancer is I provide either an assignment or a springboard 
and I say, just devote 20 or 25 minutes. This is what, this is sage advice. This is not my advice. This is advice of decades right. of composition and you teachers. Peter Elbow. It's funny, like I, when I mentioned earlier to you, I taught high school uh, English. Uh, Peter Elbow was Writing Without Teachers was the book I used. Exactly. <laughs> right. So yeah. generations of composition right. teachers and researchers have recommended this. This is not original with me. But 20 or 25 minutes a day with an assignment or a springboard. So for an assignment, for example, I might, you know, I, I gave some examples, uh, describe the radiological mask or the catheter attached to your body. Uh, make, give us a portrait of your nurse, your favorite nurse. Uh, write a prayer or a curse. Um, for the springboard, I provided sort of a little sentence that could be finished. When I look in the mirror, what I see is, or yesterday I used to do something, but now, mm-hmm. um, by most, the most beneficial thing that happened to me after cancer, which I never foresaw was. <laughs> um, so getting people to just sit, for, I used to say to my students, put the seat of the pants on the seat of the chair. Just sit for 20 or 25 minutes, and then the next day they have something to work with. They can go back to that paragraph, and that's much easier, I think, for most people. The first draft always difficult. But then you see something and you realize, oh, this could be, this one paragraph could be three different paragraphs that would really help me understand how I've changed after the diagnosis or after the treatment. Hmm. The um, You do mention, again, writing therapy. And uh, you quote a, uh, uh, at least I think it's one study in here, maybe it's a 2014 study that that tried to sort of uh, understand quality of life with with writing as a as a healing method. I think there have been a number of oh, scientific sure. studies that uh, for renal cell cancer patients, for breast cancer patients, um, that that have shown that writing is therapeutic for cancer patients, and that's why Virtual Ink is a program at Memorial Sloan Kettering, and there are many other programs at other hospitals where where coaches and editors and journalists volunteer their time so that patients can come in and start working on either a journal or a letter or a blog or a short story or a performance piece. Um, Hospitals are using these people as volunteers and hiring them sometimes as professionals because the scientific research bears it out that writing is therapeutic. Writers have known this for years. I mean, Kipling said that writing, you know, words were drugs. They were powerful drugs. And we all know that that's the case. Well, you mentioned earlier that um, agency is a part of the problem in cancer treatment. You lose agency. Everybody is doing things to you. And, and, and writing is a way in which you become, you know, you're the, you're the, the director of that particular project. I think the fact that you really can choose every word, you can choose the shape of every sentence, you can choose to take on a particular tone, you can sneer, you can mock, you can laugh, um, you can cheer. I think the fact that you have incredible linguistic control is a real consolation when you are lacking control over everybody, every part of your body during some of these treatments. I also think, though, writing, I say, writes the wrongs of cancer, but I also think writing is a kind of right, R-I-T-E. I think if you stay in a place 
and you concentrate and you move the pencil or pen across the paper or push the keys of the keyboard for a certain amount of minutes, you go into a kind of space that is has to do very much with concentration and attention. So like yoga or like meditation, writing can become a kind of space of peacefulness. Mm-hmm. Well, it is, uh, it's good advice probably for uh, everything that we do to, to have a way to take some time to ourselves. Um, you know, we, we work against this constant onrush of, of, of need to be seen or be doing something or, and, and that's all again online as much as anything else now. So, um, taking the time to, to be able to stay away from all of that as well as um uh, is necessary so it's kind of a hard thing to to address you know how how we are able to re- to re or i guess to learn in the first place that discipline the sitting down in the chair you know can can you do it maybe five minutes at first right uh, well it's i i think the same thing happens with meditation and yoga mm-hmm. i mean if you keep on doing it you know, practice, practice, right. practice gets you, you know, how do you get to Carnegie Hall? <laughs> practice, practice, practice. Right. Right. Um, so I think that it is also a gift you can give yourself. Mm. It's a, the gift of solitude and of quiet and of introspection and of thoughtfulness. Now, you, you also did start yoga, is that, that right? I did. <laughs> so I you, did. You were both uh, writing and in yoga, uh, getting yourself lots of meditative spaces. I was very lucky because our YMCA here had um, a wonderful teacher named Lori Riggins who had a, 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 a yoga class for cancer patients. Unfortunately, she had an accident and mm. is no longer doing that, but I'm hoping that she will get well and she will go back to doing that. If she's listening, I hope she hears that. <laughs> I'll send her the link. <laughs> <laughs> It's time for a break. This is Interchange on WFHB. Today we're joined by Susan Gubar, influential and well-known feminist literary scholar who in 2008 was diagnosed with stage 3 ovarian cancer, a terminal diagnosis. We're talking about her latest book, Reading and Writing Cancer, How Words Heal. Our break music is The Pearls by Jelly Roll Morton. Next up, we'll explore the visibility of being a cancer patient and marked as an other. Stay with us for more with Susan Gubar on Interchange on WFHB.
Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. I'm Doug Storm. Our show today is How We Talk About Our Dying, and our guest is Susan Gubar, influential feminist literary critic and author of two recent books detailing her living with cancer, Memoir of a Debulked Woman and Reading and Writing Cancer. For our final segment, we discuss how Susan Gubar put her lifelong practice of writing to work in the blogosphere. She became a contributor for the online New York Times Well blog at the same time she began what she calls her miracle clinical trial in August of 2012. We also consider memoirist Michael Corda's analogy between African Americans and cancer patients as it has to do with the visibility of side effects, an assertion that cancer patients are stigmatized and visible as an other, much the way African Americans are conceived of as a visible other or special group different from a quote-unquote norm. We close with the compassionate witnessing available to us through photography and painting, what Courtney Baker has called humane insight in viewing the suffering of others. All this kind of happened at one time for you, it sounded like, in terms of the the blog, uh, the the trial as well. Let's talk about your trial, actually, if you don't mind. Uh, that was 2012, and the blog at, really at the same time, is that right? So you had these two events happen that you, you were kind of, you say, say in the book, that you were elated about, right? Uh, so uh, two nice things to find your, your own way again. In August 2012, um, I was writing these essays, and I... I did not know anything about where to send them. Mm. And they were way too long, and they were way too graphic. And they were kind of a reprise of the memoir. And um, But I, I started reading uh, blogs in the New York Times and got the idea of put, put, you know, sending something to the editor of the Well section, Tara Parker Pope. And um, she liked the first two pieces in August that I sent her and suggested a, a little bit later that I... I continue sending her pieces, and I was ecstatic. I really enjoy the genre. I like the fact that it's 800 or 850 words. I mean, it's not that long, and and you can't do that much. And I think that it's therefore kind of tentative, which is good, because when you're a cancer patient with an incurable disease, you don't know what's going to happen in a month. I don't make plans six months from now. Um, So in a blog, which is kind of a humble form... You're, you're making one point that you can make sense of in 800 or 850 words. You're not making a vast proposition or declaration. I like that humility of the blog. And the, and the trial came about at the same time and has been, as I said, miraculous. Mm. Well, it, uh, it is nice that they're linked to the, the ability to, to sort of, um, be able to reflect maybe in it from a different space. You know, you say you started out writing things that you probably weren't going to get published or, or were in, in a different mode or tenor, perhaps. Uh, and you talk about the blog mood also in a way in which maybe it shifted you into a different way of, of thinking about your situation. The blog has definitely shifted my perspective on my situation, in part because of the question of audience. Um, when I wrote in my journal, I was writing for myself. Anything went. I could say anything. When I wrote the memoir, I, I stayed pretty close to the journal. Um, it was going to be a book, and I had a feeling that it would be read by people with ovarian cancer. And so I stayed pretty close to the actual, I stayed very close to the journal. Um, with the blog, I'm very aware that I'm being read by 
a very large number of people because it's the New York Times. And um, many of them don't have cancer, and many of them have various other forms of cancer. I, I don't want to scare anyone. I don't want to frighten people. I, I don't want to be tendentious about my perspective in that genre, but I also want to be fairly personal. So I've, I have a different sense of, I call it in, in reading and writing cancer, uh, various forms of self-censorship come up mm. in the blog that they did not come up, that did not come up in the, in the book. Mm. You want to name a few of those? I, I know that some of them are like, you know, I have cancer, but I'm not an expert. Right. I'm not, or, you know, smile, you have cancer. I mean, you're supposed to be brave and happy and make everybody feel yeah. good. One other thing you talk about, too, is you sort of having the sense that people do want you to tell them what to do. Yes, I think that's another thing that I, I dislike. I do tell people what to do in terms of writing. And reading, Where I'm happy to instruct right, correct, people right. on reading and writing, but I certainly would feel it just a case of massive hubris to advise anybody on how to deal with their cancer. It's a very personal issue, so I don't want it to be an advice column. Absolutely. Well, you did talk about the the uh, trying to understand the compassionate use drugs um, and really not be able to get a handle on, on what the ramifications are of those particular programs. Well, that, that's another form of self-censorship. I am not a science writer, and I don't want to pretend to know more than I do. Um, I don't know genetics and biotechnology. Um, or, I, I or don't, the way the FDA works. Or the, F, or the way the FDA <laughs> works, and I can't pretend mm -hmm. to know that. So I don't want to be an advice giver, but I also don't want to be a science expert. I want to write about cancer from a personal perspective. Mm -hmm. Now, you do make uh, several points throughout about privacy, uh, about a private sense of what you're doing, as well as the public uh, sense. The, we, you just talked about audience as well. The book, again, giving uh, the idea that you could probably be more intimate in a book than you would be on the blog. Um, I think you can be very intimate in a blog that's meant for your family and for your friends. It's a very public blog you're on. It's a, pu it's a very public <laughs> venue. <laughs> it's very public. Well, you know, that's, that's the, one of the things that you talk about really uh, in the end. You know, you talk in the last chapter in this book, which is about the blog, you talk about your discomfort with certain parts of your own situation and then wanting to get over that so you could help others be able to have those conversations. And I think that's a big part of what you're doing. Well, Virginia Woolf said um, that it's extremely difficult and that the women of her generation had not managed to tell the truth about the body. And I think that every uh, cancer patient, certainly I, have had very, very uh, dysfunctional parts of my body that have been very difficult to talk about. I do talk about them in books. I actually have found ways to talk about it in the blog. But I try to find ways in the blog to talk about fairies, bodily dysfunctions that won't frighten readers and, and won't scare them about their own prospects. Mm -hmm. I think that's extremely important. Yeah, it was one of the, the worst parts of, of dealing with the situation is always really being afraid of everything that you find out. Um, there's very, very few times in which you, you can be excited. <laughs> I think that there is a way. That's why we get to the places that, you know, we worry about alternative therapies because they offer hope without, without much thought about that, uh, in a sense. You know, the, you, you wonder about the responsibility of those particular things. Uh, I think fear permeates 
the lives of cancer patients and of cancer patient caregivers. I think fear of the unknown. You can't see the cancer. You can't feel it. You can't taste it. You don't know where it is. You don't know if it's spreading. You don't know how long you have. I think fear is, is, and you, of course, fear of recurrence is at the heart of this. Yeah. Well, is there, um, you talked too about the ethics, I think, of life writing in some sense. We had, uh, uh, John Aiken on here, um, it was a while ago, but we talked about, you know, autobiography and how there's an ethics to life writing. And, and you address that in this too. You, cancer isn't just about you, it's about the people you, you live with, the people you love, your friends, your family. I think the issue of self-disclosure in public venues always involves your family and your relatives and your friends. Uh, do they want to be named? Some people do not want to be named. I have a, I'm have a member of a cancer support group here in Bloomington of women with gynecological cancers, and they know that I write about the group. And I find the group as healing as writing. I think, I think groups uh, of survivors can be extremely empowering for the people who are participants. But I have always said to them, do you want to be named? Or do you not want to be named? And uh, and I think it's extremely important to make it very clear to the people you're interacting with that you are going to respect their privacy. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. You're listening to my pre-recorded conversation with feminist literary scholar and living with cancer blogger Susan Gubar about her most recent book, Reading and Writing Cancer, How Words Heal. One thing that I wanted to address, if we could, uh, is what you call compassionate witnessing. Well, the issue of the compassionate witness uh, became clear to me because of Leon Tolstoy. Um, At the very end of uh, the death of Ivan Illich, his son comes to his bedside, and he can see that his son is suffering. And it's the suffering of his son that, in some sense, unlocks him and delivers him, as you point out, like a newborn through that black bag into the light. Mm -hmm. So I think that the way in which the fiction and the memoirs indicate that a compassionate witness who sees and accepts and registers what the cancer patient is going through is extremely important and can be very redemptive. Uh, the poet who writes as a compassionate witness in the most beautiful verse is Donald Hull, who writes about um, the dying and then the death of his wife, the poet Jane Kenyon. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and he is a, a perfect example of the poet as compassionate witness. Yeah, the book Without, I think is the name of the, the book. book. The book is called Without. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful book of poems, which I had not read when I finished mm-hmm. writing, reading yeah, and writing cancer. I just came across it a few months ago, and it is the paradigmatic. He is the paradigmatic compassionate witness. It's it's hard for me. It was hard to call it anything less than just like an. It's it's a flood of emotion as you read read that that particular book. Yes, it's a beautiful yeah. book. Yeah. Uh, well, and then two into the corda is trying to understand, um, you know, how we either make people groups that even though um, they are very different, distinct individual, they have different and distinct responses and reactions to their life and their cancer or, or to their situation in life. One of the things that you make a point of early in the book, too, is about the, the variations 
of cancer, the variations of personal response to cancer. You, I think, in particular, um, use Stephen Jay Gould and a, a, an essay from the 80s, I think. Um, the 85 essay, The Median Isn't the Message. Well, Gould's point is one very important to me right now, personally, because what he's talking about is that when you get a prognosis, in my case, three to five years, uh, that is statistical mean. It's not, it's not, um, it's an average of some sort, and um, it's important to know, no question. But in every a graph of every disease, there's what he calls a tail, a little tiny tail on the right of people who survived much longer than the prognosis predicted. I am now in that tail, as he was. He lived for 16 or 17 years beyond his diagnosis of a very, very, very uh, dangerous form of cancer. So I think that Gould's point is that we, we we need to think about the prognosis seriously, but we have to understand that there are exceptions and that there is this tale. The question of Michael Cord's analogy between African Americans and cancer patients has to do with the visibility of side effects. Uh, right now I am wearing a wig, but if I took my wig off, I would look like a cancer patient. The reason I wear the wig is I don't want everybody everywhere in the supermarket, at Kroger's, on the street, here on 4th Street. I don't want everybody to immediately categorize me as a cancer patient. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean I'm denying it. I just don't want to have to deal with that. So when Michael Cordes says there's something that African Americans and cancer patients have in common, that they are pigeonholed, he's talking about the ways in which certain side effects make cancer patients visible as patients. And as patients, they are then treated as a special group, different from the, quote, norm, close quotes. Mm -hmm. I think it's a fascinating point, and it's certainly one that I grapple with. Hmm. Well, last uh, last week uh, our program had to do with humane, what the the author Courtney Baker called humane insight, and is trying to understand uh, suffering. Um, uh, well, her particular point is suffering of the black body in the in this particular, uh, um, in our particular moment, but also from lynching forward and and how we view the black body and in, in its suffering state. And and part of the thing that that seemed interesting about that in comparison was that you know, what we see and how we react to it and w what is, like, wh how we're seen by those things as well. And it seemed to me in your discussion of, of the art that you talk about in here with f photography and painting as well, I got that sense, that same sense, what am I, uh, how am I affected by seeing? As uh, And there's the, the worry about voyeurism comes in in both places, you know, how do I, um, how am I affected by this? How am I changed by this? Is this teaching me or am I moved to particular things by this vision? You know, in a, in a world where we're inundated with these things, where constant images and constant imagery, are we, are we inured? Is that the right word? Are we, are we able to be moved by these things still? Well, I can only speak for myself. I think the photographs of David J. are extremely moving. He um, did an entire collection of photographs of women uh, after breast cancer, mastectomies, and uh, radiation and chemotherapy, and uh, they are available on the web, and I think they're extraordinarily moving. They're all about people looking at us and our awareness of what it means for us as viewers 
to be looking at them. Mm. And I think they're, they're extremely, um, evocative of all different kinds of women having many, many different responses to being a model, to being a spectacle. Some defiant, some angry, some sad, but they're, uh, they're quite moving as a collection. Were there particular things you'd want to say that we didn't cover, or is there anyth- anything that you want to... It was a pleasure <laughs> to have such a, an interesting conversation. Well, good. I, like I said, it's a, it's a fascinating book, and it, it's a nice, a nice introduction to a lot of the literature as well. I think that's, that's an important thing. As you say, there's, there, there are many things to read out there. And the, the hardest part, I think, when you go to a bookstore or you look online, you're like, I don't know what any of this is and I don't know what it's going to be when I open it and is it going to hurt me as much as it helps me Um, so it's good to have a guide such as yourself to help us understand thank you so much that's our show thanks to Susan Gubar for spending time with us to discuss her latest book Reading and Writing Cancer How Words Heal published by W.W. Norton in May of this year And thanks to her husband, Don Gray, for choosing our music tonight. We'll go out with another from Jelly Roll Morton, Dead Man Blues. Next time on Interchange, White Trash. I'll speak with Nancy Eisenberg about her recent book, White Trash, The 400-Year Untold History of Class in America. Waste people, crackers, clay eaters, and sand hillers. These are some of the historical synonyms for the current catch-all, White Trash. Surveying political rhetoric and policy, popular literature, and scientific theories over 400 years, Eisenberg upends assumptions about America's supposedly class-free society, where liberty and hard work were meant to ensure real social mobility. Poor whites were central to the rise of the Republican Party in the early 19th century, and after emancipation, Reconstruction pitted poor white trash against newly freed slaves, which factored in the rise of eugenics, a widely popular movement embraced by Theodore Roosevelt that targeted poor whites for sterilization. These poor were at the heart of the New Deal reforms and LBJ's Great Society. They haunt us in reality TV shows like Here Comes Honey Boo Boo and Duck Dynasty. Marginalized as a class, white trash have always been at or near the center of major political debates over the character of the American identity. White trash on the next Interchange. Tuesdays at 6 p.m. on WFHB. I'm Doug Storm. Thanks for listening. I produce Interchange. Our assistant producer is Rob Schoon, and Joe Crawford is our executive producer. Again, this is Jelly Roll Morton with Dead Man Blues. The Jazz Menagerie is coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB. WFHB.